the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Dr. Patrice Machaba, the president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. He shows us how technology can create systemic racism, both in the medical field and in human clinical trials. And now, Dr. Patrice Machaba. Dr. Machaba, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Thank you for having me, uh, Moya. Now, while you are president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation, and thus your current focus is on the United States, Novartis itself is one of the top global pharmaceutical firms. And listeners may know it more by its drugs, such as Cosentix on down, all by their names. Let's start there. Tell us about Novartis. Well, as you say, Novartis is a global pharmaceutical company, um, almost 300 years old, um, and is present in more than 120 different countries and engaged in uh, almost all disease areas and new technologies, including gene therapies, cell therapies, and biologicals. We have a very strong presence in the U.S. People know us for our discovery unit in Boston with close to four or 5,000 scientists, uh, but a really wonderful company. And I've been working for this company now for the last 22 years. Now, I know there is a Novartis Foundation, which is a global foundation. And this is what we're talking about today is Novartis U.S. Foundation. How do those two relate? So you're, you're correct. And thanks for bringing that up because people get confused. So the Novartis Global Foundation is based in Switzerland in Basel and actually used to report into me because I used to be the group head of global health reporting into VAS, who's our CEO. And they deal with global health issues outside the U.S. In the U.S., we have the Novartis U.S. Foundation that only deals with healthcare issues in the U.S. So that's the distinction. Now let's get to the challenge at hand. We came to understand during the COVID-19 pandemic, just as new diagnostics and treatments and vaccines were all being developed and emerging, there was what was termed medical distrust on the part of minorities. And today, let's talk about the Black African-American communities. What do we know about their medical distrust and what are its roots? You know, that, that That's a very important question. And, and actually, just to give you some background, a personal background. That's why I actually asked my CEO to be transferred to the Novartis U.S. Foundation during COVID, because we understood that the trust issue was deep, that it was centuries in the making, started off with slavery and discrimination and a lack of integration of the African-American community, almost in every facet of life, education and so on. And everybody knows about the Tuskegee experiments done by the government on African-Americans. Everybody knows about the use of Henrietta Lacks cells. Uh, and so the, the, the trust or the mistrust is deep. And we saw that immediately during COVID uh, in terms of mistrust to participate in clinical trials, mistrust to utilize the vaccine. And we'll talk about this later we at Novartis really felt that just a response with a PR tactic without a deep engagement with the community to understand their mistrust and how we can break that mistrust 
uh, it was important that we do that before we come up with a program. So many people think this is about if you just have the drugs, we have to get over that mistrust so they'll walk up and take them. There's a lot more to this in the sense that we have to develop the drugs that include them. As a woman, I was always amazed that for many years, women of any background of childbearing age were excluded from clinical trials. And so when we received a drug, doctors would have to make an imaginative leap to say, prescribe it for women. Well, perhaps they weigh less. You know, it turns out we're all different. <laughs> and we are all different. We're all humans. So this is no longer the case for women and minorities. It's law. And yet people of all ages um, you know, are required to be included in clinical trials. But how inclusive can they be? Clinical trial subjects are volunteers. Are we seeing minorities and specifically black and African-American communities in clinical trials? Not enough. Uh, that's the lesson we learned because of this mistrust. I want to go back to, you touched on the issue of women of all races in clinical trials. Even today, because of the exclusion criteria that we put there, because of the fear and the experience of thalidomide, a lot of the clinical protocols will exclude women from the clinical protocol. So, if, so when we looked at the current databases of trials that go to the FDA, there's still a deficit in terms of the number of women that should be participating in those clinical trials based on the disease and the disease burden. Now, specifically when it comes to African-Americans, because of the trust issue, the numbers are appalling. Uh, if you don't have trust within the community, they don't participate in the clinical trials. But you have to go backwards and say, how, how can you then persuade patients from the African-American community to participate in clinical trials when you don't have enough investigators or doctors or nurses who come from that community uh, to participate in the clinical trials. And, and that's why we, uh, in the beacon of hope that we'll talk about, we come up with a comprehensive plan to try and increase the number of investigators that come from that community, male, female, across all the races, yes. And the science is simple. If you don't include all of these people, we won't know how well or if the drug works for them. That is so correct. So it's not only whether the drug will work for them, but it's also could the drug be harming them, right? So it's the both sides, the benefit-risk issue that's important. And, and, and it is so important that we in the U.S. here uh, lead in this area. And why I say that is that because we are probably the most multiracial, multi-ethnic country, Within single individuals. <laughs> yes. If we do this well, we can provide data for other patients around the world. A lot of other patients and doctors and associations in different countries look to the U.S. to say if that data is coming out of the U.S. or American medical societies, it must be correct. So we have a great opportunity to, to do it well. I also think that when we take the data for these clinical studies and we take data for prescribing medications or, or finding out the health of an individual, 
I was surprised that some of the technology uh, is not appropriate for people of color. Well, you know, again, you know, I, I guess COVID was a was a, a wake up call, a turning point. We discovered, as you know, during COVID, that the pulse oximeters, for example, that you clip onto your finger, that measures how much oxygen you have in your lungs, what we call oxygen saturation was overestimating the oxygen saturation of black and brown patients. So you can think about this, Moira, right? That it may have happened that a black or brown patient, male or female, had COVID, went to casualty, somebody applied this pulse oximeter and said, no, your oxygen levels are fine, and therefore were denied oxygenation or were denied hospitalization or were denied ventilation. And, and when we started asking, how, how could that be? It was a simple answer, and you're an engineer, right? When the pulse oximeters were developed, they didn't include enough black or brown patients to calibrate their data. That's just the tip of the iceberg, and we should, and we should discuss this because I think this is one of the greatest findings and opportunities we've learned. Our diagnostics, let alone our clinical trials, a lot of the diagnostics that we use in medicine have not been calibrated with all the different races and you know wonderful tones that we have of people in the in the US. I started with the pulse oximeter one and then so when this discussion started, and we also started engaging with the medical community and the historically black medical schools, fortunately, the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the number one journal in the world, then did a quick review and essentially said, hey, wait a minute, it's not just the pulse oximeters. There are probably about 13 other disease areas where we use race for the diagnosis, for the treatment, for the algorithms, to the detriment of either females or black and brown patients. So for example, when we want to measure how, whether your lungs are working well or not, we call that a lung spirometer, you blow into it and it gives you a measurement. The spirometers automatically take 5% of your function if you're Hispanic away from the number. If you're African-American, it takes 10 to 15%. So what does that mean for an individual? You have to lose more lung before lung function, before this parameter says, hey, you got a problem with your lungs. And then when we ask, where does that come from? It comes from an old age theory that the lungs of African slaves are smaller and therefore subhuman compared to the lungs of Caucasians. And that has been integrated into the medical care. I, I'm, I'm a practicing obstetrician myself. I'll give you another example. Uh, there's a scoring from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology called Vaginal Delivery After Caesarean Section, the VBAC score. In other words, once you've had a caesarean section, Depending on your race, there's a score that says what's the risk of you either 
rupturing your uterus or failing in the cesarean section. When you add African-American into the score for a woman who's had a cesarean section, the chances of her getting a repeat cesarean section without even trying for a normal delivery are almost 60, 70% higher. So population-wise, you end up with a population that's getting more cesarean sections, the risk of bleeding in theater, the risk of anesthetics, the risk of infection. And no wonder why part of the reason the maternal mortality rate of African-American women is three times higher than Caucasian women. So the New England Journal went through a whole list of where we have assumed that race is the differentiator. In other words, it's a biological difference, uh, whereas, in fact, it's a social difference. So part of what we have to do is to deconstruct that so that the practice of healthcare for everybody in the U.S. and around the world, by the way, as we discussed, uh, is based on proper evidence. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Patrice Machaba, formerly the Novartis Group Head of Global Health and Corporate Responsibility. He's now focused on the United States as president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. Now, I know that the Novartis U.S. Foundation has a four-pronged approach. Let's go there. So, uh, and, and, and thanks for bringing that up, um, because I think what we have done here is unique. Um, my experience on the global health side is that if you build programs that improve the health care of people, programs that are transparent and that are open to all parties or people, NGOs, companies that share the same values, uh, those programs succeed. So when George Floyd was murdered and then we had COVID and we saw the difference in hospitalization and deaths amongst African-Americans and Hispanics, we decided to consult first with the African-American communities, with the National Medical Association, with the four historically black medical schools, that's Morehouse, Howard, Meharry, Charles Drew, Professor Valerie Montgomery Rice from Morehouse Medical School was a key partner in advising us. We joined hands with the Thurgood Marshall College Fund and say, and we asked the fundamental question, what can we do to fundamentally change the trajectory uh, that each time we have a pandemic or each time we have a recession, it is black and brown and females who suffer the most uh, when it comes to... <clears throat> Uh, hospitalization and deaths. And, and the insights, they were obvious. There's a lack of STEM education up to K-12. When the kids go to university, college fees are expensive, so they end up not studying nursing, pharmacy, or medicine. They drop out. The four historically black medical schools don't have the same level of endowments that some of our other Ivy League universities have. Therefore, they can't build centers of excellence for clinical trials or attract the best talent to stay and say, hey, if you love science, if you love engineering, if you love math, it's actually a good career that's well-paying. So most of them end up graduating and going back to the community, finding a job to uplift the rest of their family. So a really good insight. And then other insights we learned were that 
it's not just about the medicine. It is a lack of trust. So we discussed the Tuskegee issue. We discussed the Henrietta Lacks issue. So that became important. And, and that's why we then uh, said, okay, uh, after four months of discussion, it was really interesting because we did this during COVID um, <laughs> via Zoom. Uh, uh, it started in February last year. Uh, and after four months, we came to an agreement. And I, I want to emphasize this, Moira. It, it took four months simply because they wanted to know whether they could trust us or not. <laughs> Even they didn't trust you. <laughs> yes. We had to earn their trust that we get it. And that's why the program is called The Beacon of Hope. And that's why it's 10 years, because putting a three-year program or a PR for one year with a bit of money would not change centuries of what has created this. And that's why it includes scholarships, internships, mentorships, and creating four centers of excellence for clinical trials at the four historically black medical schools. So we provided them with funding for the professor, the research fellow, and three other headcount for 10 years. So they can do trials, not only for Novartis, but for any other company that they think is important. And then one of the unique things we proposed, just to show to them uh, that we get it, Via Thurgood Marshall, we created 10 research grants for non-medical faculty that can research on any topic that they think contributes to health inequity. It could be food deserts. It could be a lack of 5G. It could be all sorts of things, environmental issues, water. Well, we've seen Flint and so on. And so we expect and so we expect at least a hundred research papers over 10 years. We're going to take those findings. We've already had discussion with Billy Mitchell from the National Black Caucus of State Legislators and Hispanic to say you can take all those findings. If it can impact policy and law, you can then integrate that into policy and law. And change, and then uh, and then and then ask for the funding, and then hopefully impact population health and individual health. So qu quite a unique uh, partnership. And then finally, of course, we said this is not about Novartis, by the way. This is about impacting the community in a fundamental way. And we said we will then open it up to any company, medical, pharmaceutical, or not, competitors that shares the same values. Uh, and as you know, wonderful partners of ours, Merck and Sanofi have joined and have also agreed to do clinical trials in the four centers for the next 10 years. That's why we think this is fundamental and it's a beacon of hope. Now, I know that Novartis has committed $50 million. Are these other partners bringing in funds as well? So... <clears throat> And, and thanks for pointing that out. The $50 million is from the foundation. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's from the foundation, Novartis Foundation, which is good. The real investment, which is larger, are the internship programs, the capacity development. So, for example, our discovery unit in Boston, called Nibber, has just ha had the first cohort of 18 very bright kids 
doing a summer internship fully paid for for three months, teaching them drug discovery, translational medicine, gene therapy, and so on. And we're going to do that for the next 10 years with an idea of training at least 200 to 250 new scientists. We're going to do that in different parts of the organization. Via Thurgood Marshall, we've already started planning over a 10-year period to mentor at least 1,200 students, postgraduates, in all fields, so that we can show them that you can love science, you can join engineering, science, and pharmaceuticals, etc. So that's the being done by the Novartis U.S. Corporation, and that's the biggest investment. But there's no financial, there's no financial value, there's no financial value you can ever put to human capital development. It changes generations, because they, their careers will never be the same, and their children's careers will never be the same. Uh, the other companies um, are now going to be doing clinical trials with their full support and portfolio for the next 10 years in the four historically black medical school. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Dr. Patrice Machaba, the president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. There's no financial value you can ever put to human capital development. It changes generations. Because they, their careers will never be the same and their children's careers will never be the same. That is the greatest investment, inclusion, developing trust, uh, creating new specialists and care wells, male and female and so on. Uh, and, and we have another uh, four or five uh, comp- companies that we're in discussion with who now want to join the same thing. Now, many people are a little confused about how there can be systemic bias. Uh, And you talked about some of this in your examples. I'd like to know how your insights have changed looking back, looking to where we are today, uh, at different from the beginning of the four months of talking with everyone from uh, HBCUs and Thurgood Marshall to to now. How has your perspective changed? What have you learned? That That's probably the most important question. Um, I have learned uh, in my experience during uh, 22 years in global health around the world that if you're honest and are ready to tackle difficult problems, there's always a gift at the end. And, and, and the gift I'm talking about here is that, uh, you know, the realization that not enough women or black or brown patients are participating in trials, that they're not enough investigate, that's obvious. And that will solve. And we have partners in Merck and Sanofi and other partners who are going to help us do that. We'll solve that, Okay. That, that's, a, that's a numbers game. But what I learned, and a lot of us have now learned, is that over the last two to 300 years, we have racialized medicine in the USA. So we talked about the pulse oximeters. We talked about the lung function test. I can tell you it's the same thing with the American heart, get with the guidelines. So, for example, 
if an African-American has heart failure versus a, a white American patient, there's, there's a risk score that says the African-American patient will do better. And what does that mean? Uh, what that means is that if you have a young doctor or a nurse who's looking after an ICU and they only have one ventilator and, and two patients come, one African-American, one Caucasian-American, that score would direct that doctor to give the ventilator to the white patient. The, the, um, the, the cancer societies say African-American women uh, have a less prevalence for breast cancer Therefore, the screening of African-American women for breast cancer is less. But we know for a fact that the diagnosis of breast cancer happens earlier in African-American women at a later stage because they were not screened. And when it comes to something called triple negative or, or the most devastating forms of breast cancer, it's, it is higher in African-American women. And, and that, that, to me, that realization that we've assumed these biological differences or causes, as opposed to saying, these are social constructs, that to me has been a learning. And uh, we, uh, <clears throat> we have created a center of excellence at Morehouse, and they're working with other universities because this is everybody's responsible, responsibility including the American Medical Association and all the associations, to go back and relook wherever we include sex and race in terms of diagnosis, prognosis, and, and algorithms, treatment, we need to review that. I can, I, can, I can think of just a few genetic solid diseases that impact, right? Sickle cell, everybody knows it, right? predominantly African-American. There's one kidney condition, APOLA1, uh, uh, that drives kidney disease in African-Americans. The rest are all biological, are all social constructs. So just, just to, give you, you know, to give you a specific example, we talked about heart failure. Um, it could be that the African-American patient doesn't have access to a primary care doctor doesn't have access to fresh food, organic food, uh, doesn't have access to a community where they can go and exercise and jog because of crime. And therefore they come in with more morbidities or more sickness with a heart failure. So redoing that, I think is going to be the greatest gift to uh, all patients in the US and globally. Now, how we do science is uh, is a human activity, and therefore we get biases uh, in it, no matter who does it, how they do it. Uh, but I think anyone would be mistaken if they thought that these activities only benefit Black African Americans and people of color, because in science, science helps you, if we talk about the information that comes out of it, it it understands and appreciates the complexity of biology, the complexity of humanity. And as we say on Technation, what we learn about one of us, we learn about all of us. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's the beauty of this discussion, right? Because all of a sudden now we're beginning to say to ourselves, our construct of race is meaningless, right? 
how do we get better to understand the true construct of race? And the only way to do that is to sequence people's genomes, equivalently. Uh, you know, I was outside the country giving a talk last week and um, only to realize uh, that the percentage of the human genomes that have been sequenced that are of African origin or African ancestry, in other words, African-Americans and so on, is only 2.5%. Whereas the greatest genetic variation is within the African genome itself. So if you're trying to find causes for certain diseases in Japanese or Caucasians, etc., you're better off screening the African genome because you have higher heats and greater var variability. If you want to find treatments uh, for diseases that sometimes impact a different race from African-Americans or Africans, you're better off screening that enriched population. So this is why something that started with COVID, not enough participation, a simple discussion of patients and investigators has now for us, at least for me and the Beacon of Hope and our colleagues gone to, oh, there's a greater opportunity here to benefit everybody if we do the right things. Dr. Machaba, uh, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I, I, my thanks is to you, uh, Moira, and uh, it's a pleasure. Please, uh, please uh, hold us accountable. Uh, and and uh, it will be our pleasure to come back and uh, discuss on a yearly basis the progress we're making. My guest today is Dr. Patrice Machaba. He is the president of the Novartis U.S. Foundation. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.